Well, good morning. It is great to be back with you. You know, one of the things I'm really enjoying is hearing some of your stories. When you go out, we don't have a whole lot of time, but I appreciate the fact that you're inviting me into your life, and I hope that we'll get to know more, you'll get to know more about our lives as we uh, spend these Sundays together. But thanks, thanks for uh, getting closer and for the way that you listen. You are an extraordinary audience to, to talk to. Um, I want to start off with uh, a blue jean check, because if you were with us last week, you, you heard us talk about kind of the dress code for the series. Uh, so what are you wearing? But I'm not so much concerned about what you're wearing as I am what your expectations are. What you're bringing to this time together as we work our way through, uh, through the book of James. We titled this series Blue Jeans Theology because it really has to do with what happens in your workaday practice of the Christian faith what it's like for you every day as you try to live out uh, what you think God would, would have you to live in his life, in your life. It's not so much about how faith is to be understood, knowledge, but about how it needs to be lived out in the common, ordinary, everyday experience of life, how you practice your faith. Now, last week we talked about what happens when you face trials and troubles, when stuff comes into your life. How do you, how do you respond to that? And this morning... Our focus is on wisdom, and whatever kind of wisdom is the right kind of wisdom we need to have in our lives. And I mentioned to you that James follows in the tradition, most people think of some of the wisdom literature even in the Old Testament, the, the, the books that had all kinds of, of wise advice about how to live. And there are a few books that are any more valuable for that kind of everyday living advice than the book of Proverbs. In fact, it's one of those books that's really great devotionally. You can just you know, get to Proverbs, you just open up and start anywhere. You can, you can take bite sizes of uh, Proverbs, or you can do buffet, a little bit of here, a little bit here. You know, it's just kind of one of those, you read, it, read a proverb a day, and it's a good way to, to develop you. And I love the way uh, the whole thing starts out. This is prologue to the Proverbs. It starts right there at the beginning in the first chapter, and it says, These are the wise sayings of Solomon, David's son, Israel's king, written down, so we'll know how to live well and right, to understand what life means and where it's going, a manual for living. Start with God. The first step in learning is bowing down to God. Only fools thumb their noses at such wisdom and learning. Boy, there's a lot in that, isn't there? Um, I especially like that one phrase in this paraphrase uh, that you find in the message, and that is this manual for living. It's the place where you go, the thing that you turn to, to be able to see what your, your source of wisdom is. Now, like I already said, wisdom is not so much knowledge as it is the way you live. It's not, it's not so much what you possess. In fact, it's not how many initials you've got or how many you know, credentials you've got in your life or you know, what follows your name or what kind of degree that you have. Frankly, I have known a few educated fools. Have you? I mean, anybody, anybody knowed, known an educated fool? Uh, I heard a story about a guy who was uh, a very respected scholar, and he was a great speaker, and one of his admiring followers had come to hear him speak, and she was sitting in the audience alongside the wife of the speaker, and the speech was, the speech was progressing, and uh, she was really impressed about how, how well and articulately he was talking, but she also was impressed by how, how immaculately he was dressed. And uh, she, uh, she noticed somehow his monogram socks. You know, this is a story. So, uh, you know, some stories you kind of wonder, how do you, I, th I thought, how do you see your socks? But somehow she sees the monogram on his socks. Well, most monograms have like what? Two or three 
initials. I mean, unless you've got like a whole bunch of long names, you, 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 you put your initial on there. But this one was unusual. It had T-G-I-F was, was on the socks. And she thought, well, that's kind of, so she leaned over to the speaker's wife and she said, uh, it's kind of unusual. She said, it's kind of familiar. Does that mean, thank God, it's Friday? And she said, no, it's to help him out every morning as he gets dressed. It means toes go in first. <laughs> now, you know, wisdom is knowing how to put your socks on. It's knowing how to start a day. It's knowing how to be wise as you go through what you do, living like you should. Back in 1984, there was a movie that caught, captured the hearts of, of all the nation. It got almost all the Academy Awards. It got like Best Picture, Best Director, Best Visual Effects, Best Actor. Tom Hanks was awarded for that and a whole, whole bunch more. And uh, it became part of, um, of kind of the passion of the American culture. It was Forrest Gump. You, even if you, you guys weren't alive. Well, I guess you were close. Did you, you see it? Probably not. You, you're very young. But you, you've seen it, right? You know, you know what the story is, because it captured all the American heart at that time. It's about a guy who had a, a relatively low IQ, and he had a physical uh, problem with his legs at first, and he overcame all these infirmities, these hurdles, and he did, like, spectacular things in his life. And the whole movie just chronicles the inspiration and the funniness of what it was like to be Forrest Gump. And uh, as memorable as anything about this movie were not just the places and, and wild things that he did, but the sayings that you find in there. Now, whether you've seen the movie or not, you, you've heard some of these sayings. Let me, let me just remind you of some. Like, here's one. My mama always said that life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. There's good wisdom in that. Or Forrest Wenham said, I am not a smart man, but I know what love is. I like that one. Mama always said dying was a part of life. I sure wish it wasn't. Um, and this one, don't let anybody tell you they're better than you. Or everybody knows, run, forest, run. We got that one down. But it's, it's, it's another one that I thought of. I think a weird thing sometimes when I'm putting sermons together. But I was thinking and reading this passage. This word, this phrase came to my mind out of the movie. And I'll, I'll not just tell you, I just... I'll share it with you because it comes out like several times So the movie. You just, just watch. Are you stupid or something? I'm as stupid as a stupid does. Are you crazy? Or just plain stupid? Stupid as stupid does, Miss Blue. I guess. Are you stupid or something? Stupid as a stupid does, sir. Now, I have to be honest. My mama told me that I wasn't ever supposed to use the word stupid. Did you have mamas like that? Because, you know, you get mad at your sister. I got two sisters. In fact, in the first service, for some reason, I got a phone call from my sister right as soon as I got up here. She always pocket dials me, so that's probably what she did again. But, uh, you know, that the, 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 those phrases catch in your mind, but it's not, it's not uh, Stupid is as stupid does, but it's a flip version of that that I'd like to kind of hang our thoughts on this morning. And it would be, wise is as wise does. Can you, can you get that in your head? If you don't remember anything out of what I, what I say this morning, will you remember that? Say it with me. Wise is as wise does. 
Wisdom is evidenced not so much by our knowledge as it is by what you do. It's how, it's how you act. It's not what you know. It's how you live. Now, the problem, let's be honest, the problem for most of us is we think we know how to live. We are convinced that we know what's best. There is this dangerous arrogance about us, which should bring us back to what Forrest Gump's mom told him, stupid is as stupid does, because a lot of us kind of live out stupid in our lives. Do you remember the conversation that Eve and Satan had in the Garden of Eden? Uh, Eve has just been tempted by Satan to go against what was a clearly expressed directive from God that they were not to eat of the forbidden tree. And in response to all of that, Eve pushes back and says, God said no. But then the serpent says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Subtle, isn't he? He kind of, kind of mixes up the story a little bit. Well, she responds, God didn't say from any tree, but from this tree, he told us, we're not supposed to touch it at all or eat from this tree or we would die. And Satan says, oh, you, you would not die. God just knows that if you do eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be wise like him. You will then know on your own what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. You will be wise in your own right. Now I'm paraphrasing and taking a little bit of liberty, but I think that's kind of the general sense of what was going on. That lie that has plagued that seminal kind of temptation that has become the plague of all the millennia that have followed. You want to be wise? You don't need God's help. You can do that, and you can figure that out all on your own. You know the biggest impediments to uh, being wise in a good way in your life? One of them is your ego, that you've got it down pretty much that you can figure out how best to live. And the second is the one who's going to tempt you to believe that, the same one that tempted Eve back in in the garden. Well, James, in some of the opening lines of his book, says in chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you don't have it, even though you think you do, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously unto all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. There's an old preacher uh, named Vance Havner, been gone for a long time now, but he had like pithy sayings, and one of them was this, he said, if you lack knowledge, go to school. If you lack wisdom, get on your knees. Ask God. Now, the problem for most of us is that we have the bad habit, if not feeling that we've got the answer ourselves, to asking all of the wrong people. Or maybe if we've ignored God for a long time, even though we listened to this admonition that we're supposed to ask God, we're just a little nervous about asking God. Maybe you have made it a, a habit of looking for wisdom in all the wrong places, so you're reluctant to ask a God that you've ignored for so long. Now, I, there are probably people in your life that could help you when you're in trouble uh, that you could call, kind of like Rachel didn't do. You know, I thought that was a, that was a good story. She could have called the one that could have helped her probably the most. Not that the son didn't help, but, you know, she... She, she, got that, she got that figured out. But there, some of you, even though you know there's somebody that can help you, you would not call them because you know if you ask them for help, it will come with judgment. Anybody got somebody like that in your life? Unfortunately, sometimes it can be parents or 
neighbors or whatever. You know if you ask, you're going to be judged, and you're going to get some kind of lecture about, you know, why'd you get yourself into this, this trouble of what's going on. You'll never hear the end of it. Or you will get what you need, but it'll be stingily given, and there'll be all kinds of strings attached to it. And heaven forbid, if you ever sleep up, slip up and fail again, and you come back, you will be reminded of that again and again and again. James says in this phrase here, that is really not the disposition of the Father. That's not how the Father treats us. Notice what he says. He says, God gives how? Generously to all, and this is, this is a good part too, without finding fault. He does not rub your nose in your failure when you come and say, help, please God, I need to live a wiser life. Listen to Psalm 103. I like these words. He says, God is merciful and tender towards those who don't deserve it. Amen. He is slow to get angry, full of kindness and love. He never bears a grudge nor remains angry forever. He has not punished us as we deserve for all of our sins. For his mercy towards those who fear and honor him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sin as far away as the east is from the west. He is like a father to us, tender and sympathetic to those who reverence him. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. The psalmist says we do not have a God who gives in stingy ways. Just like, just like James says that. He doesn't dole out his generosity to us in itsy-bitsy teaspoons. He gives us buckets of his blessing. He just floods us with all that he has for us beyond measure. James says if you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives how? Generously to all without fault, and to you it will be given. Now when you ask, James says, you do need to ask in faith. In fact, he says, you must believe, verse 6, you must believe and not doubt. Now God's always going to be generous. When you come to him and ask, he's always going to be generous. But faith is not a game to play. It's, it's serious business in life. God is patient, but that doesn't mean that we should vacillate between wise and stupid. Some of us are like that, aren't we? We, you know, we do smart things, and then we do dumb things. We live in good ways, and then we live in, in bad ways. And he's saying, if you live that kind of life, he says, that's kind of like a, that's kind of like a, a wave out on a, on a storm-tossed sea, and it just gets pushed this way and that way and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It's not like God is looking at us and saying, can't you make up your mind? He's saying, I want you to live a stable life. I don't want you to be that person that is blown by this and blown by that. I want, you to have, I want you to have some grounded stability in your life. I want you to be wise and I want you to be healthy. Not falling into sin and out of sin, but wholeheartedly in a relationship with me. There are risks when we choose the wrong kind of wisdom. James says over in verse 17 of this first verse, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So if you ask God, you're going to get good stuff, but there are potential sources for wisdom that aren't heavenly sources, that are earthly sources. And it's here that we turn the remaining of what he has to say, especially over in, in chapter 3. 
And it really is really helpful because he expounds on that a lot and really gives us an understanding of this manual or what can be manuals for living. There is a wisdom, he says, and this is over in James 3, 13 through 18, that is sourced in heaven, but there also is a wisdom that is sourced here on earth. There's good wisdom and there's bad wisdom. There's heavenly wisdom and there's hellish wisdom. And it's important for us to be able to recognize the difference. And so that's what he does. He he helps us, he paints the bad stuff, and he paints the good stuff. And here, here's how he does it. I'll just start reading with you in verse 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitty, bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthy, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil, evil practice. But the wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest in righteousness. Now, here's what James is trying to say. There's, there's two sources. There's actually almost two life manuals that you can choose from. And the choice that you reveal that you choose will make a difference. Uh, you can either choose the stupid is, the stupid does, or you can choose the wise is, as wise does. In fact, there's bad wisdom and good wisdom, so... Even the wise is as wise does can be bad if you've cho chosen the wrong source. The message says, look at your life. James 3, again, in a fresh way. Do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Here is what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly in the way you live, not the way you talk that really counts. Now, it's suggested by some that part of James words here may have been for church leaders they'd gotten too full of themselves and we, we can do that you know we can get full of ourselves we can we can look and say wow you know everybody appreciates me and maybe the behavior is based more upon our status than it is in our rootedness in the word and so he's he's pushing back a little bit and saying you know it's really not all about you it's about this heavenly source and he offers wisdom lists on each side and i kind of put it in a chart for you where you can see kind of the the heavenly is on one side and the hellish is on the other. And then there's this kind of general concept that pulls them all together. The heavenly is characterized by gentle humility and the hellish by selfish pride. One of the most confusing things about, about Jesus to people that, that followed him around is he didn't act like who people said he was. He, he did not act like a king. He didn't act like somebody who was this big highfalutin uh, leader. He was anything but pompous. And they knew that kings were supposed to be pompous because that's just what kings did. But Jesus was so unconcerned about power and prestige and rank and entitlement. He, he lived out every day the life of a servant leader. He didn't have a place to call his home, no pillow to lay his head. He, he had no crown on his head except for the one that they put on him in ridicule when he was finally crucified. He didn't hobnob with the elite he made friends with outcast people. In fact, he got criticized for spending all his time with the wrong people. Paul, when he was writing to the Philippians, said, that's the kind of mindset you need to have. That's the kind of wisdom that needs to inform your life. In Philippians 2, 
He says this, starting in verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others, too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, who, though he was God, gave up his divine privileges, took the humble position of a slave, born as a human being, humbled himself in obedience to God, and died a criminal's death on a cross. That's upside down, right? It is upside down, according to the wisdom of this world, for the first to be last, for the greatest to be the least, for the king to be a servant. It's the antithesis of humility. James starts out, and he gives us the bad stuff first. He tells us what real wisdom is not. He says, the wisdom that does not come down from heaven has at least these two distinguishing marks, bitter envy and selfish ambition. The wisdom that we get from here on earth tells us it's all about my rank and status. It's all about how, how elevated I am. It's all about how, how I am, particularly in comparison to you. As long as I'm better than you are, I'm okay, right? Isn't that the way it is sometimes at work? You know, you look at the person next to you. As long as, long as you're one rung on the ladder ahead of them, you're okay. It's about place. It's about prominence. It's about power. It's about how how you can climb. And if it means I have to climb over you or step over you or crush you or cut your feet out from under you, I'll do that. Arrogance, self-promotion, jealous rivalry, rampant ego are all destructive paths. And he says they are part of the earthy, soulless, demonic, devilish, hellish wisdom that this world is trying to, to feed us. And what this disposition creates in the life of a community, in a, in a nation, even in a church, he says, is disorder and every evil practice. You know, we're, we're experiencing so much of this in our world today. Goodness, I don't want to get off on that. Man, we, it's like the whole world is enemies with each other. It is chaos because our relationships are so strained. There's an interesting Greek word that's used in here for this chaotic state. Uh, and it almost sounds like something chaotic. A katastasia. A katastasia. I mean, that's how it comes out. It's almost like messed up, messed up, messed up, messed up. And there's this this preacher, George Antonakis, who's, uh, who's got a Greek carriage, and he remembers when he was growing up that his grandmother, uh, that he they loved very much, would sometimes come in the room, and all the grandkids would have been fighting and fussing and tearing up the room, and she would come into the room, and she would say, kata, katastasia, which, which meant something like, you know, look at this mess. Look at this mess. That, that's kind of what James is trying to say here. It's all messed up. You guys are spending all your time in rivalry with each other. Look at this mess. Now, that's one thing to say to a bunch of grandkids that have just messed up a house and are wrestling with each other or punching each other, but we're supposed to be adults. This is written to the church. It's written to us. James points a finger and he says, look, look at this mess. It's not addressed to sinners. It's addressed to saints. It's not an admonition to the world. It's, a, it's an admonition to the church. I'm reminded of that Allstate commercial. You, this guy, he's, he's everywhere, right? You know, the, the last one, he's like the, 
the mother and the mother-in-law in the car, you know, put on lipstick and all that. I mean, they've 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 gotten a lot of money out there. Now I've known a few people in churches like this. I have I have known a few people. None that I've met here yet, but you know, <laughs> we got time. We got time. We'll we'll figure that out because we all we all got those rough edges, right? But he's James is saying, you want mayhem, you pay attention to the the, the learning mantle that comes from wisdom from below. Now, when you get the spotlight on us like that, it gets, you get a little squirmy, and you have to question some of your motives and your aspirations. And you, you ought to ask yourself, am I, am I more about being humble, or am I more about being proud? Am I selfless, or am I self-seeking? Now, fortunately, most of James' admonition is about the good stuff, so we turn to the good stuff now, and the bad stuff will come back and forth, because it's kind of the opposite of the good stuff. But he comes away from that earthbound stuff, and he talks about heavenly wisdom. So we're on the gentle humility side of things. And thankfully, that's where we finish up and as we work our way on through the rest of the message. Um, how do we aspire to be more like this wisdom from above? How do, we, how do we act more like Jesus? Well, he says this wisdom, this lived life from above is characterized in several different ways. There, there, are, there are marking traits of somebody that's guided by this wisdom from above. And the first, first one that he says is that, that kind of person who is wise from God, is pure. He's pure. It's the condition of his heart, her heart, that matters. What do you do, though, when your heart gets all soiled? When, when you've listened to too much life, and you've listened, listened to too many of the wrong voices, and, and you've just kind of got crud all over you? Well, this last summer, I decided I was going to do an out, outdoor project. I like working in the yard. I enjoy cutting the grass. It's something that, you know, you get her done, and you can see it done. I mean, preachers, sometimes it's just kind of nice to be able to have a mindless sort of thing that you can do. I decided I was going to work in the backyard, and the one thing that we had not done anything to, we've got this little step-down deck. It's not it's just a little square piece. We got like a, we have a grill on it, and there's a wrought iron little thing that we don't sit on, but looks cool, and she puts cushions out sometimes when people are over, and then there was a, the, that, that's about it, you know, just sort of sits there. But the, the wood, I did, it looked really bad. I mean, it was... You know, sometimes you get leaves on it, and I thought, well, it's the leaves, but it looked that way when we moved in. It was just really bad, so I decided I needed to do something about it. I would attack. We got a screened-in porch. That's where we spend most of the time, but you got to step out on it so you don't want people to go out there because it was just, it didn't look good. Um, and I, quite honestly, I assumed that it was staying for life. Um, you ever had something like that? I mean, it just looked really bad, just like gunky all, all, all over it. When my next-door neighbor one day, he with another neighbor had bought one of these, uh, you know, kind of these uh, pressure washer things. And uh, he was cleaning his deck and everything that moved and kids and garage doors and everything. He was taking paint off his house. I mean, he was, he, but, I, you know, I was kind of watching. I thought, well, you know, I really don't want to rent one. So I kind of went over and had a conversation with him across the fence. He's a good friend. And I, I finally, you know, you, work, you don't just say it right out when you're asking for something like that. You wait a while. And then I say, hey. You know, I was thinking about working on my day. How, how would you feel? I waited till he was done. I mean, he was getting ready to put it all up. He said, yeah, sure, you can borrow that. I brought that sucker over there and had a little bit of, of, of uh, washing it. But I started on that deck, and, man, it was amazing. There was wood under there. I mean, it just, you know, I had to work at it. In fact, I got so excited about it, I, I ran in the house and said, Carol, you got to come look at this. I mean, we're looking at it like real wood. I mean, this is not just junk. We're not, we have to rip this place out. It, it's, not, it's not all that bad. And after I got it all cleaned off, and it took me a long time to do that, we put some of this, like, teak oil, you know, sealer on it. Man, it just looked really, really, really impressive. I never would have imagined that something so bad could look good. So, 
how's your life? You know, if somebody looked at you or you looked at yourself and you thought, oh, man, th th I'm just this way. I've always been this way. I don't know that I can do much better. I'm just kind of earthy. I love the way the psalmist David, after a dark moment in his life, finally came to the realization that he needed to be clean. And he wrote this confession in Psalm 51. He said, have mercy on me, O God. Blot out the stain of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. And I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God. You know, the, the simple fact is you cannot be pure on your own until somebody cleans you up. This pure heart thing is not about working harder at it. It's letting the power of God penetrate all that stuff in your life and make you pure. That's where it starts. And if you don't start there, if you don't have that as the platform of your relationship with God, if that's not where you do all these other things that I'm going to talk about, they're not going to happen because you've got this gunky stuff that you're, that you're building all those things upon. He goes on and he says, here's another trait, peace-loving. The message describes it this way, getting along with others. Too many people in our lives would rather fight than talk. They would rather yell than listen, stubbornly hold on to their position rather than ever even give a single stick, stick an inch. Do you know somebody like that? Uh, they are not peaceful people. Uh, Kit Hughes tells a story about a couple, an old couple that had an anniversary. It was their 50th anniversary, and they'd lived a long life. And somebody asked the old man what the secret was of uh, marital bliss. And he said, well, he kind of drawled a little bit. He says, my wife and I had this agreement when we first got married, and it went like this. When she was bothered about something, she'd just tell me and get it off her chest. And if I was mad about something, I would go out and take a long walk. So he said, I suppose you could attribute our happy marriage to the fact that I have largely lived an outdoor life. <laughs> so, um, that, that may not be terrible, terrible wisdom. Sometimes you have to take long walks. But sometimes you have to have a disposition that loves peace more than war. That chooses calm over conflict. Marriages are, are hard work. It takes a lot of hard work, right? I mean, some of you guys have been married for a long time or even a short time. Is it easy? No. I mean, it's tough. It, you know, it's hard because you're two different people and you've got two different minds. And it's not a peace that avoids conflict. I mean, sometimes that happens. You know, hopefully it's more peaceable than it is conflicted. But even when you're conflicted, you're trying to do the right thing. Paul said to the church in Ephesus one time, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Try hard. Try hard to be a person of peace. He says, too, that this wisdom from above causes us to be considerate. Some translations translate it gentle or kind. It's kind of a complex word because you can't just use one word to, uh, to translate what it means. Matthew Arnold in talking about this verse, called it a sweet reasonableness. That's an interesting translation, a sweet reasonableness. reasonableness. He says, it's, it's somebody who knows how to make allowances, uh, when not to stand upon your own rights, how to temper justice with mercy, kindly consideration. 
Then there's this word that comes next, and it's a word that most of us don't like, submissive. Um, willing to yield to others. Or it has the sense of being reasonable or sensible in your life. Or I like this, it means that you are persuadable, that you're teachable, that you don't conclude that the only one who knows the answer to the problem is you. Earthly wisdom is arrogant and stubborn, and it refuses to listen or desires to hear an opinion that anybody has, much less be persuaded by it. But heavenly wisdom, he said, is open. You know, you may have a strong feeling, and you may have a strong feeling about that, the fact that you're right, but you listen. And amazingly, um, sometimes you find out that somebody else got an idea. Some of, the best, some of the best meetings that I ever had with elders in the past were when we would sit down and I would come in and I had an idea about what I felt like needed to be done. And we didn't have a confrontation about it. We just talked through it. And I would go out and have a, their idea was better than my idea. You ever had that happen? It's like if somebody is persuadable, if somebody is open to listening, if somebody leaves options in there, willing to change to admit that they might not have the best idea, and then if we finally can't come on an agreement, at least we decide that we're going to disagree agreeable. That can happen too. That happens in a marriage sometimes, right? You know, you don't agree on it, but you didn't kill each other. <laughs> that, was a good, that was a good thing. Then he goes on to say that there is a trait of being full of mercy and good fruit. Earthly wisdom, the bad kind, is more likely to welcome mercy for yourself, but don't ask you to give it to somebody else. You deserve it, but nobody else does. If I fail, here's how you can look at it. If I fail, you forgive me. If you fail, off your head. <laughs> That's kind of what you do. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of you. Jesus once told a story about, he told a story about a man who had been given this forgiven this huge, extraordinary debt. I mean, just beyond numbers that you could think of. And it was like, that's good. And then he goes out and he has this guy who owes him just a nothing. I mean, just a little bit. Just a little, a little tiny bit. And he is so nasty with that guy that he throws him into prison. And the boss, who had forgiven the middle guy all the great debt, well, let's just say it didn't work out too well for that unmerciful fellow. He didn't get it. Or another time, there was this prestigious religious guy in the community that had invited Jesus to a dinner party, and they were sitting at the party, and he had, you know, probably had the linen all set up right, and it was really nice, great food, really wonderful, and then right in the middle of it, this lady, this street lady, this sinful woman, walks somehow through the open door in there, and she interrupts the whole thing, and she stoops down to Jesus at his, at his feet, and she, she perfumes and washes, you know, it's like all this kind of stuff going on. And this guy, the host, is just incensed because she is messing up their dinner party. And Jesus tells him a story too, but the, the, the point of it all was the reason why she is doing what she was doing is because she is so grateful that she has found mercy. He had forgiven her. He said, do you see this woman? I don't think that he was so much telling that host, man, you're a dirty, nasty, multi-layered, you know, messed up kind of guy. But he was saying, you don't realize that everybody, everybody needs grace. You're not self-aware enough about where you are. We're all charging on the same credit card. Maybe some of us have to charge more than others, but that we all only get in because of the goodness of God. 
So you get grace, you ought to give grace. It doesn't say in the Bible that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for a few good souls that weren't as bad as the rest of them. We all need a savior. We need to dispense grace. And you'll notice also that he talks about mercy's good fruit. The, the problem with a lot of people that are gracious is they'll say they're gracious, but they don't, they don't really, they don't show it. They don't, there's no fruit of it. Talk is cheap. Even if God says the world has to be loved, it doesn't mean I have to do anything for them. Does mercy cause you to do something? Another trait. He says that this wisdom from above is impartial. It does not play favorites. You don't treat some people one way and other people another. You're not prejudiced. You don't choose the people that you're going to like or not like or who you want to have in your presence or not have in your presence. You're not, you're not selective that way. Some people matter to you and some people don't. That's not the way it is. Finally, he says, it's sincere. Um, basically, what this word means is without hypocrisy. You probably know in the Greek theater, they, uh, a lot of the men played different parts, even the women's parts. And they would, they would play different parts by putting a different mask on. And they would put the mask on, and they would be that person. And we, we use that word for, for which we get our English word, hypocrisy, which means somebody is being deceptive. They're not really, they're wearing a mask. They're they're not what you see is, is what you get. James says the person, the person who is informed by the wisdom of God does not have pretense. Have you ever known people that you're not really sure you can trust because you don't know what they're thinking and you spend half of your time in the relationship trying to figure out, do they really like you or do they not like you? People who have the wisdom from heaven don't treat people differently from each other. They, they are not hypocrites. And the ultimate outcome of all of this is that there is this harvest of righteousness. Hosea chapter 10, verse 2, it says, Plant the good seeds of righteousness, and you will reap a crop of my love. The opposite of earthly wisdom that tears everything up in chaos is peace. Paul, when he was trying to weigh good wisdom, bad wisdom, wisdom, foolishness, wrote these words to the church in Corinth. The first chapter starts around verse 8. He says, The message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell-bent on destruction. But for those on the way to salvation, it makes perfect sense. This is the way God works, and most powerfully as it turns out. It's written, I'll turn conventional wisdom on its head, expose so-called experts as crackpots. So where can you find someone truly wise, truly educated, truly intelligent in this day and age? Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world in all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered dumb, preaching of all things, <laughs> that's great, to bring those who trust him into the way of salvation. The story, the story of James's personal life is really important for us to remember. You, we talked some about it last week. He was a half-brother of Jesus. And the most significant thing probably is that he didn't believe. He, he, he had doubts. He, he did not think that Jesus was who he said he was until... Right after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to a whole bunch of people, and then it says he appeared to James. 
And they had this one-on-one, heart-to-heart conversation that changed James and transformed him to be this church leader that he was forever after. One writer who's uh, talking about how James came to see life in a different way says that James got the Easter angle as his perspective. He understood that what Jesus had come to offer him was true because Jesus was alive. And in the power of that resurrection, he realized that what he said and how he lived was how he needed to live his life. So James says, who are the genuinely wise and understanding in this world today? They show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility, inspired by wisdom that comes from heaven. So I have to ask you the hard question. I have to ask me the hard question. So how wise are you? And what kind of a life manual, which choice of a life manual have you picked? Do remember, it always will show. Stupid is as stupid does. Forrest Gump's mama reminds us of that. But James, I think what he's trying to tell us too, if you pick the right kind of wisdom, wise is as wise does. Let's pray. God, this, um, this book of James is so full of so many uh, powerful things that it teaches us. I thank you for the way you changed this writer's life by his conversation with a brother who came back from the dead to help him understand how important it is for us to believe and act in the right ways. I pray as we keep sampling from this book that you will teach us how to be wise, that you will shut our mouths and cut down our arrogance and invite us into the humble life and mind that was evidenced in such a clear way by your son Jesus. Help us. Help us to learn how really to be wise. In Christ's name we pray.